happen to the vaccine. Uh, this is Adam Myros once again. Steve's lavish uh, Italian vacation continues, so uh, you're stuck with me. And uh, joining me, as per usual, stuck here in America, uh, Jack Eason. I'm still stuck, although I'll be going back to Ireland later this year, so maybe you'll get to record a, a podcast where you can introduce me in absentia and say I finally escaped. Except I will probably come back again, because I got a lot of shit here. Fair enough, fair enough. Also, I don't count Ireland as a vacation, personally. I mean, for me, it isn't really either. It's more of a... more of a catching-up scenario. Sure, sure. I I limit vacation status to places people generally want to go. You know, but, uh... Um, also joining us, we have... Jake Trapilo once again. Jake, how are you doing today? I'm doing just fine. How are you, Adam? I am surviving. It's it's been a long week, but uh, we we're through it. So, yeah, I then that has for once nothing to do with the films we watch because we're back on the good stuff again. Uh, we are potentially rounding out our, our Katano series. Uh, maybe we'll probably squeeze at least another episode out of it, but I'd say for now. We're, this is kind of at least the, the break point where we're going to keep doing the every other week thing. We'll we'll probably return to it later, but I feel like we've now officially hit most of his essential films and uh, and a couple weird trilogies to boot. So I, I think this is kind of a natural pause point anyway on the series. Uh, with uh, that being said, we're we're starting with one of the few I had seen going in, uh, his debut film, Violent Cop. Which is, uh, yeah, that's that's a title to a film. Uh, I'm going to assume it's quite Americanized, but I don't know. It, uh, it is the the Japanese yeah. title is something like "Warn, do not approach this man. He has nothing to lose," or something. It's it's much more <laughs> loquacious, which is ironic for a Takeshi Kitano movie. Although maybe he speaks more in this movie than most. Still. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. It, it might be a, a high watermark for his speaking, but uh, that, that's not saying much. Um, yeah, this is it, the title that they, they did settle on for international release certainly brings to mind a particular breed of thing that's coming out in 1989. And I think this film is in some ways aware of that sort of lineage of, as we talked about with, with Cobra last week, this sort of very fascist uh, police action film that was, it was very prominent in the eighties. But if you're expecting that out of, of Katano in, in this film, you, you're going to be a, a little disappointed, I'd say, but I, I, I don't know. It, there are elements of that sort of film in this, but there's also, again, as we've come to see with Katano, especially outside of the absolute greatest of his films, uh, things get very strange, and then the tone becomes very difficult to parse at times, and I I think that is definitely the case with Violent Cop. Uh, It's a movie I quite enjoyed, but I'll be interested to hear you guys' thoughts on it, and uh, I suppose I'll kick it right to you and see what we got. Because I'm new to this uh, Katana series. Uh, You guys brought me in right here at the end. I wanted to share a little bit of my history. Uh, I knew him first, as many Americans do, as a uh, Vic Mar- Mar- Romano in the host of uh, MXC, uh, forgot which uh, station that was on. Uh, haha, it was on Spike TV. That Jane. sounds right. Television for men. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. I am a man. <laughs> um, but no, uh, I uh, I've 
seen i actually first saw katano many many years ago i think when jack and i were getting acquainted on the internet i actually learned how to download movies so that i could watch sonatine online um so that he's kind of like my gateway to torrenting uh which oh i'm sorry not sonatine hanabi uh, which I thought was uh, incredible. And I've seen Sonatine and his uh, Outrage trilogy. And uh, I had seen Violent Cop and Boiling Point previously, but I was happy to revisit them. And I thought, uh, oh, this these are some excellent films. And just kind of charting throughout his all the decades he's been working, he is a consistently strong filmmaker. Uh, there's still several spots I have yet to see, but it's always a delight, I think, to tune into anything katano is making because if if it's not you know the best film he's made it's certainly worthwhile and uh i'm really happy to be on the slate for this trio of films because one of them i've seen might be the best film that i've seen for this podcast in any form uh but yeah i uh i really enjoyed revisiting violent cop uh it's you know certainly an apt title and i think you could also call it boiling point um but yeah it really it really just is a nice l- simmer of a film that eventually explodes and it hits you know it hits many of his like self-destructive themes and it, it also has moments of his he's known for the pitch black comedy in his film work but uh yeah i think it's a it's a strong debut not his best film but certainly one of his strongest yeah, it's it's a peculiar debut because I'm again I know we've we've said that several times throughout our previous podcast, but so Katana was already at this point a household name in Japan, huge TV star. He'd done serious acting previously. We already really was known for like Nagisa Oshima's Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence, alongside David Bowie. Like he was a, he was already a seasoned actor and a household name in Japan for his TV celebrity and his comedy and so on. So he wasn't necessarily a director, but he hadn't directed up until this point, and he wasn't supposed to direct this movie either. This was actually going to be a Kinji Fukasaku film, the the great, you know, Battle to that Honor and Humanity and Battle Royale, another film that would have a Takeshi Kitano return in an acting role. Uh, he was originally going to be taking on the film, and apparently he left the film either because he was ill or because he felt that the constraints because of Kitano's schedule were too restrictive that he just couldn't... He, you know, he didn't want to make it work or whatever. I've, I've heard competing stories about this. Maybe he was sick of Katano's schedule. I don't know. So Katano stepped up and, and it kind of changed the project considerably. Katano said, you know, he, as I say, he was a veteran actor at this point, um, decided he would try his hand at directing the film. And the film, as it was originally conceived, was apparently a comedy, which is kind of an interesting thing. Um because it is still a comedy, but Katano uh, ex- like, heavily rewrote the film, apparently, uncredited. I don't think he has a writer's credit on it, but apparently he did. He took the, the script that was existing and did serious rewrites to it, uh, and then ha- handled the direction, and uh, I guess the project was turned into, like, a, hey, we, it's a Takeshi Katano is directing a movie now, and I think the scheduling and everything changed, so maybe it turned into the kind of movie Kinji Fukasaku actually might have wanted to make. Funnily enough, but anyhow, um, it's it's a so so it's a peculiar film in that sense, in that it is the only film in Katano's career as a filmmaker. I think that he hasn't written, conceived from the outset, written and directed. Um, Violent Cop is him inheriting someone else's material, and that's an interesting starting point unto itself. And it's kind of an interesting film because it's it's how much of it is already recognizably Katano-esque in terms of its humor. I was say it's still humorous, but as Jake points out, it's 
dark dark humor it's this is a really grim film uh for, from any perspective but there's kind of those elements that are are there of katan what we would come to know for katana's material but the camera work the editing he didn't edit this film i think uh it was a scene at the sea third film which we'll be discussing later in this part i think was the first film he edited as well which kind of was where he cemented his his hold over the all the major artistic input elements of the film essentially you know writing directing editing um so yeah, Violent Cop is kind of interesting because it, there's a tension in there of kind of like it's Gatano breaking out, but it's not entirely his work, but it's very recognizably still fits within what we come to know him for, but um, is also, you know, understandably kind of a, a reconstructed project. And I suppose what comes out first and foremost in this is, is his kind of interest in or suspicion of authority figures and, you know, kind of... Uh, kind of rigid codes of life conduct, you know, kind of like police versus criminals. It's not like Katana's the first guy to come up with it. Cops and crooks are kind of the same, but like in Violent Cop, they're they're really the same. Like there's no distinctions drawn whatsoever. Um, and it's this idea of people living in kind of, you know, like they're, they've, they're supposed to do things and they kind of live within that code, but they're doing their own thing as well. And really everything's pretty terrible. And it's kind of looking back on it, having watched some of his later work as, you know, doing the outrage trilogy and stuff. It's interesting to go right back to the start and realize Kitano has a very dim view of society pretty much from the get go. I mean, this movie opens with a homeless man being beaten to death by some rowdy teenagers for fun. And that's like sets the tone for the film. And weirdly within that as well, we'll discuss as we progress, Katano is kind of like weirdly almost the straight arrow of the police force while also being a violent maniac who is absolutely has no regard for anyone else's well-being or the rules. And yet somehow is still kind of the honest cop, sort of. Um, it's it's honestly, it makes a movie like Cobra look kind of like almost uh, quaint in its ideal of, you know, a, a a psychotic cop who wants to wipe out everyone who disagrees with him, but we're supposed to know he knows what's best. You know, it's kind of like that. That's part of the fascist daydream. You know, is the, the idea is like obviously we're right in what we want to do. Like what we want to do was good. It will make things better. Uh, you know, for everyone we don't kill. Uh, violent cop kind of looks at everything. And it's like no, it's it's you know we could burn all this down, but you know it's this is the society we have. Uh, everyone's awful and everyone is out to save themselves. And that's it. And that's that's a violent cop. And and it's still, I say, it's a comedy in place. It still has laughs. It's still got funny bits. They're just really, really, you start wondering whether you were supposed to laugh when they happen sometimes. Yeah, it's it's such an odd beast as far as tone. I mean, obviously, I've kind of grown accustomed at this point to what Kitano is up to. But but uh, if you just look at the synopsis for this film, it reads like, yeah, like a Dirty Harry movie or something. And the difference is what lacks in this movie. Well, A, it's got the extreme malaise that Katana always tends to bring to his protagonists. Uh, that, but it, it reads so strange here because you're used to seeing this maverick cop as a, as a sort of hyper-competent figure. Like his fascist uh, breaking with establishment rules is necessary in in achieving justice in in this archetype whereas here the malaise that katano brings makes this character seem anything but hyper competent like i i just think of this prolonged car chase in this film where he's just <laughs> kind of like 
gives up on chasing the guy like three times and can't find his way down the road and it's just like <laughs> it's, it's it's just not what you'd expect it's not about getting his man he's he's just a a kind of a schlub <laughs> in a way yeah i mean he walks around he's he's a gambling addict he's like he's constantly just borrowing money from everyone you know and having like he is a, he's given a junior detective to work with who you know shows him lots of deference as is i think the custom you know like this the, the junior would you know help out the senior and you know do things for him a similar a similar set that that katano elucidates continually throughout his yakuza films you know that there's always the youngest member of the group who has to light the cigarettes for everyone else and run out and do errands and it's made just a dog's body you know and he he does that and if he lasts through that he gets up and he gets his own dog's body and he gets to you know kick them around a bit and if they last they come up but you know it's this like continual thing you know they have that in the police as well there's already that kind of mirror image but um katano's or azuma's katana's character i believe is named like he he uses his his junior to like just pay his taxi fares out of his own pocket and just do and he just keeps calling him an idiot for it it's like just mean spirited stuff and yeah i mean he's not he is by no means driven by truth and justice he absolutely couldn't give a shit he's just by the end of it the only reason he actually gets involved in it really is personal vengeance uh, and yet like i said earlier he still seems to almost be probably the most proactive police officer in the force granted we don't get a very holistic view but i mean the criminals he ends up grappling with are other police officers so that's kind of a major part of the film is that he he ends up being the the cop railing against the worst cops but mostly just because they kidnapped his sister among other things you know they're they're really awful so he is no force but to go and try and stop them yeah, I, it, it's just such a, a strange thing because, again, the sister is characterized as essentially like almost like catatonic in a way, yes. <laughs> like very detached, seemingly not even like upset to be kidnapped and abused in all these scenarios. It's just like every everything is slightly off in the world of this film. And I think that things are slightly off from what you'd expect from a, a Katana film, too, because it's just the, it's kind of obviously an early film because there's things that are quite different and don't hit quite right. I'd say a lot of the punctuations of violence in this are kind of off to me. Like I think in general, the action is kind of clumsy and uh, like the impact of, of sound that you'd see in even some of his films that I'm not that fond of in, in say the outrage series there's a certain heaviness to everything that happens in, in those films. Uh, even if it's a weird old man throwing a limp punch, it, it hits with this tremendous thud. And this movie is not like that at all. It is largely absent of impact, except in these just ridiculous moments of violence. Uh, I mean, it's a violent film in general, as you might expect from a film called Violent Cop, but it's really as if all the effort in the violence went into these very uh, minuscule scenes, like this thing with the baseball bat is just yeah, kind of stunning piece. Yes. <laughs> it's yeah. gruesome. It, it's, but what surrounds it is almost slapstick. It's, it's interesting. Yeah. Because, um, I think Katano, like a violent cop. And I must say, I think some of the violence in this movie is absolutely etched in my mind from when I first saw this movie. I'd never seen violence portrayed quite as raw and brutally as in this film. And the baseball bat 
hitting a head scene is one of those things, you know, it's just like the, you know, and it's clear it's a special effect and stuff, but like, you know, hitting the head and just the explosion of blood out the top of the head with no particular visible, you know, kind of like contraption for it. It's just an unusually kind of vicious rendition of that kind of a thing. Um, there's several of them that really stick in my head. Also, a part where they shoot a woman in the head, like accidentally. He's, you know, there's those, oh, yeah. there's those kind of scenes that are really shockingly violent. Katano's films have a violence throughout them, almost all of them. But I think he became much better at implying a huge amount of it. I think, like, it's one of the interesting things watching a lot of his movies is that. And he's, despite having a lot of clear, like, squibs and gunshots and things, a lot of the worst violence in his movies is actually very heavily implied and, and created through really smart editing. In this movie, sound, it's... Too. Yeah, and sound, absolutely. Yeah. In these movies, no, it's really, it's up there on the screen. Like, someone gets cracked over the head with a baseball bat and there's just, like, a horrific crunch and blood everywhere. It's, uh, you know, it, it's... So I think he's he's doing that there because i think it fits you know maybe he hadn't worked it out yet and also it's kind of like that was the movie you know i mean it's it's a genre police movie so you know it kind of fits with it but yeah it, it's kind of interesting even when he's not he created something more interesting but the violence he already puts on screen has this you know tremendous weight um and then as you say like the fight prior to that baseball bat scene is comical but i think it's comical in the sense that like the police are they just completely underestimate this punk who just wants to get away, and the punk bests, like, four of them in a fight just because they're all, they underestimate him and they're just not really good at it. And then he just runs off, and they have the, like you mentioned, the fantastic car chase. And I think that car chase is brilliant, because it is, it's a real car chase, but it's like a car chase where that doesn't work out. It's not, like, defined by competence. It's defined by three-point turns and losing the suspect and breaking suddenly and not and going the wrong way down one-way streets but not like in the, the exciting french connection way just in the kind of like oops shit what's going on we need to turn around kind of way uh, it's a really clever scene and then ultimately you know ends up with them just running the guy over like out of meanness more than anything else you know it's the police are just portrayed as awful throughout this film I think that's part of why I love Katana so much is that he makes all of this very cinematic, but he never it's never like overly sensationalized. Like the violence is very frank and matter of the fact. And uh, mm -hmm. his his squib work is amazing. And yeah, like you said, with the head popping like a cherry gusher, like, you know, my me being the trained movie viewer, I'm like kind of looking around to see, oh, where's the two connected to the hair that's doing that? But no, it almost looks real uh, if if the blood weren't so red. But it's uh, yeah. And, and the that car chase with the baseball bat, that is just an amazing sequence because it's also carried along by this very nice. We'll talk about music later on, I'm sure. But it's just carried by this very nice like jazzy score but it's very calm and mellow like it, it doesn't it's not like pulse pounding music that he's got on the soundtrack it's just the, it's like a nice stroll in the park music as they're going after this psychopath who's covered in blood and holding a baseball bat but um yeah he's really just the that that sort of uh contrast is what he excels at uh, just between the mundane and the violence and i'm sure that's been mentioned on this the other episodes of this podcast but yeah, uh, it's it's yeah. curious yeah. within this film particularly because, like I say, I mean, Katano inherited it, so it's it's almost like, like you're right, Jake. I mean, I think his films became known later on. There are there are these strong contrasts between stillness and violence, but in his very first film, that contrast is there. But you almost wonder, you know, how much of it is 
one production hitting another, one production style and expectation hitting another. Because, I mean, I was reading up a little bit of this and apparently there was quite a lot of argument on set because Katana wanted to shoot scenes in very unusual ways right from the get-go, as he would do later on. Uh, and the cinematographer and a few other people kind of like in the crew were kind of like, no, you can't, you know, and you're, you've never directed a movie before. We're going to do it the right way. And I think the film does reflect that. The film has, you know, a lot of it is, it, it looks very good. It's a, it's a very nicely made film. It's got great cinematography, actually. I mean, I think there's a great kind of interplay of light and shadow in, in like a lot of it takes place in like dusty warehouses and ill-lit streets and so on. Um, you know, all of those contrasts are there. Um, but it, it's kind of like a curious thing of like, how much of that was Kitano like sticking himself in there? There's a few scenes that have these really unusual, very extreme camera angles. Um, you know, so, some of them are shot. There's a few scenes in, and admittedly they're in cramped spaces too, but like they're almost shot, almost topped down. Um, that feel definitely like maybe Kitano trying to stra you know, stamp an autorial kind of element to it. So yeah, it, it's kind of schizophrenic, the project and the, the music as you mentioned, kind of hits that too. The, like, the main theme of this movie, I think, is fantastic. It's this weird, like, springy, almost upbeat, lilting thing. It, it doesn't fit the film at all. And I wonder, was it written for the other film? You know, possibly well, so. This is, it's a very, uh, it's a, a piece of classical music. Uh, uh, Satie, I believe is how you pronounce the composer. But yeah, it's, it's actually... The piano version is quite famous, you know, you would recognize it if you heard it, but this is kind of warped in this very strange... You know, I never made the connection, uh, yeah, because, I mean, it's one of the funny things coming back. I haven't seen this movie in years and years and years, and the second the theme tune kicked in, I'm like, oh yeah, that's that's it, that's this movie. <laughs> right, and it's just, like, so deliberate in its employment as well. Like, there are grand stretches of this thing that have... No music at all. Yeah, a lot yeah. of it is just it's, shots yeah. of Kitano just walking to work. Like, just, he's right. very, just a very casual, strolling guy. But uh, there is one shot, reverse shot, that I almost applauded in my own home uh, later on. Uh, it's where he's interrogating the gangster in the, like, the locker room of the police station. And he throws the guy to the ground uh, next to an open locker. And the guy sees that there's a knife in the locker. And he looks over at Kitano, and he's just kind of slumped over on the bench and but then we do the reverse shot which is behind katana and we see that he's holding his weapon just out of view and like he wants the guy to grab the knife uh so that he could murder him but uh he it doesn't go that far but uh, it, that was just sort of brilliant i thought yeah there's there's a lot of like little smart things in here that um i guess what you know kind of you think maybe Katano did come up with them himself because as we'll get to Boiling Point, his second film, uh, like it's full of these little smart details too, these very smart visual things, which I guess, I guess maybe comes from Katano's comic training. You know, he thinks visually, he thinks in terms of like items and props and so on, you know, and, and kind of those, those small details. Um, so he seems very naturally kind of uh, capable of the, the the medium to begin with i would just say um that the cinematographer on this film is uh yasushi sasakibara who is i think this i think that makes violent cop the only katano film that is not uh shot by the other guy yanaka tijima i think um i should i should double check that but um 
yeah, Katsumi Yanagijima, who is who I think has shot every single Takeshi Kitano film since Boiling Point. He sees has a, his mm. entire career basically is Takeshi Kitano films, and he does other stuff in between. Um, so it, so there is that that tension, that oddness to this film, and I think it looks great. Um, but yeah, this is the the only film in Kitano's entire career I think that is shot by someone else outside of his own like kind of team. Uh, and it's interesting because it still has stuff like Suzumu Terajima, who was an actor who appears in a huge number of Katana's work. He shows up in a small role in this. You know, it's got those still little details that are like, you know, Katano stamping it, you know, but it is, it exists outside of his other work. It is, it's less, less his, we might say, but no less interesting because the fact that it's in any way belongs to him kind of means that there's there's a very interesting element to it. And I think, you know, above all else, it's it's a very solid genre film. I mean, it really it works very well in what it's doing, even if you might think, you know, oh, twisted cop, you know, bad guy doing bad things to clean up the street, you know, it's kind of like it, it, not the most novel thing. And I think what what Katano brings to that is he he brings that that ennui and that that kind of like um almost systemic kind of thinking of like it's it's worse than you think that kind of balloons out by the end of the film that you realize this this entire film is uh you know kind of a, a portrait of an entire system kind of propped up by corruption which would become uh something of a, a naming card for, throughout all of his his work you know and i'm thinking even to you know outrage uh his later film made many years after this has a, a, an almost identical scene to in this scene where once, you know, t spoiler alert, towards the end of the movie, uh, where one corrupt cop is killed and another corrupt cop is instantly brought back in to basically take his place and kind of buys into being corrupt. You know, he he sides with the drug pushers, basically, and gets on the payroll. There's a, an almost identical scene in Outrage uh, near, what, 20 years later, nearly, or 15 years later, um, that... You know, kind of, for, yeah, I guess it's over 20, like 20 years later, actually. Yeah, it's like trying to work out like 1989 to 2000 and something, 2010, 2011. Um, so it's interesting. There, there are these echoes and these mirrors of, of Kitano throughout. So it's kind of kind of a curious setup, really. Um, and, I, you know, I, again, I think what, what really holds for me is that despite all of the kind of friction nominally that apparently went on within this film and Kitano coming in this as his first film, um, it's remarkably well put together. It really carries itself tremendously well, both as entertainment and as a kind of a more, what would you say, a more kind of far-reaching film, as like a more authored film, you know, which I think is it's interesting because I Kin Kinji Fukuzaku, I think an expert, brilliant filmmaker in his own right, I think would have produced something along those lines as well, you know, absolutely fits the genre but has these very distinct kind of points that are you know are very much you know relate to his his perspective his films have you know very specific perspective he's he, you know that he's forged out through 50 plus years of just churning out genre movies katano took the reins and i think really in in his own way kind of i think captured the spirit really really well he kind of set his own career going but gave us this film that really works very well in the same way it feels like an old hand almost making this and yet it, it's quite the opposite so yeah if you kept on the cobra line here this would be essentially katano's cobra would be uh he kills the the axe man in the end uh and then immediately someone else just picks up the axe and starts a new cult 
And uh, after the police informant was killed, uh, she's immediately replaced uh, (laughs) by another mole in the police department. And uh, yeah, the Axe Gang does not kill Brigitte Nielsen, but uh, Stallone just comes in at the end and puts a bullet in her head. Yeah, puts her out of her misery, because it's rough. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a... It's a dark, damn film. I mean, and like I say, I think it's interesting, you know, it's... Uh, Katana's character becomes kind of like the, the angel of vengeance against corruption, but does it largely because he has nothing else to do. Like, they, they make it personal for him, and so he kind of has to as a point of personal responsibility. But it's it's not like... He's, he has no highfalutin ideals, and by the end of it, yes, he start, like he kills his own sister because... He kind of realizes that she's just so degraded in his view that she's not worth saving anymore. It's this tremendously, like, incendiary view of society. Um, And by the end of the film, we have that wonderful echoing shot of the new police informant or new, you know, corrupt cop walking over the bridge just like Katano did earlier. If anything, it's worse than it was before, (laughs) in one sense, you know, Katano, at least his character, marched to the beat of his own drum. This guy is just on the payroll like anyone else. Um, so, you know, who knows? And, and civilians are always at danger. That's the main thing in this movie is that they'll just beat the shit out of you or kill you by accident and they won't care. So very, very dismal view of law and order within this. Yeah, I, I think it's also quite pointed that at the stage where Katano does actually begin to accomplish his, his established action hero, uh, vengeance and justice. Uh, not only is it just completely savage and does it end with him killing his sister in a, a totally heartless manner, but it is, it, it only begins once he is separated from the bureaucratic system. You know, he's no longer a violent cop at the climax. You know, he has been relieved of his duty. He is just a, a civilian out me. Yeah, a violent vigilante. Violent civilian yeah. doesn't quite have the ring to it as a violent cop. <laughs> I mean, I, I yeah. guess ultimately several of his films are about violent civilians, yakuza's, ex yakuza's. You know, it's a, it's a whole thing. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, we should probably move on. We spent a lot of time here on old violent cop. Uh, the second film, and this is what I, I'm going to wait to hear from you guys on, because Jack had said, you know, I never went back to this because it, it, I, I don't know if I got it the first time I saw it, and I said. Well, this is the first time I saw it, and I don't know if I got it. Uh, we were talking about 1990s Boiling Point, a movie that is quite beautiful. Uh, I think definitely of a piece with Violent Cop, uh, and also very difficult to parse, I think. I, I feel like there's a cultural aspect to this that is beyond me, and uh, there's something about it uh, kept me at a bit of a distance, but I, I do think there's some amazing stuff in it. Yeah, um, kind of. Uh, the, this is his first film he wrote and directed. Didn't edit it, so it's it's more him from the ground up. It's it's an odd one. It, for a long time, has been I would pick maybe his weakest feature, but I'm I might reconsider that. I really enjoyed it. Coming back to it now, we never thought it was bad, but certainly I think it's it's a peculiar film, and you know it, it has a, a kind of a winding kind of rhythm its own. It's mostly just guys. Uh, self-professed fuck-ups just kind of like wandering around fucking up uh that's that's the movie uh it establishes um katano's kind of summertime theme a lot of his films are set during the summer 
brings us down to Okinawa, to the more tropical beach climate there, which of course would become kind of, for Sonatine particularly, would become really, really kind of important visual thing. So there's there's a lot of like really important kind of like touchstones for Kitano that are centered here originally. Kitano himself acts in the film, but he doesn't show up until the second half. He's He's completely absent from the first half of the film. And I think that's to kind of give the young actors that are kind of start the film off kind of room. You know, Katana was sort of like the big guy in in the house. It's kind of difficult to be around him, I think, in a movie without getting overshadowed. Um, but yeah, I, I'm curious, you know, like I suppose to hear from everyone else first before we get into it. But, you know, like, yeah, it, it's this... Um, it's it's much less precise, I feel, than maybe his later films, but I'm kind of more coming around to its just general rhythm. Yeah, if you mentioned Ennui when discussing uh, Violent Cop, but I think that's really more apparent here with these two leads. Um, and uh, I think the first time I saw this, I actually, um, yeah, like you guys mentioned, I, I don't think I quite got it. Um, I enjoyed it a lot more this time around, but... It has a very shagginess feel to it that is, it's like aimless, kind of like the two lead characters, whether they're in baseball or they're working at their mechanic jobs, like they just kind of have no real, uh, like direction in life. Um, and it, it's just sort of something that is, is kind of crushing them without knowing it, without them knowing it. And then, yeah, they get involved with the Yakuza and Kitano's character comes along and he, really sort of energizes the whole operation but um yeah i i think uh I, you know boiling point i think it's this is also just has a lot of a lot of great moments of humor like i think this might be hit one of his funniest films um like one part that stands out in my head is uh he's trying to cut off a buddy's finger so that he can offer it uh, to the yakuza and he's hammering a knife down on it, and then the woman grabs a block of wood that it has the word for perseverance on it, which they're using to <laughs> hammer this finger off. Uh, so a lot of fantastic moments like that. But um, yeah, I think uh, really this captures it sort of like that drift you get in your early 20s where you're not sure where you're going in life. Um, but it's, uh, it's, it's quite stunning to behold. Yeah, I, I think it's... Um... It makes more sense to me now, coming through, and our next film, A Scene at the Sea, is in that, more clearly in the mode, but, like, this is kind of a youth film, um, which is a, kind of a noted genre in Japanese cinema. It's a noted genre everywhere, but I, I think Japan had, um, what was the, the Sun Tribe films, which kind of came up with, like, uh, Crazed Fruit in the 1959, I think, maybe, or maybe 1960, you know, kind of set up these kind of, like, specific genre films about wayward youth often kind of like um of reasonable economic means kind of listless drawn to delinquency to crime um and you know a lot of social critique coming through that because obviously the society that produces them a society that the, the older generation went through the war and the horrors of the war and also the embarrassment of losing the war and becoming a subjugated nation and this new generation coming up um, were soft, arguably, but also maybe hardened in other ways, didn't have social values the same way, but then the question would arise, what are the values of the society? Maybe maybe there's good sense why they don't have those. Maybe it's not their job to instill them, so on and so forth. You know, I, I think I could see that lineage more to Boiling Point now, but Boiling Point is kind of a film of antagonisms, I suppose. Like, it's it sets in motion a lot of the things that would become repeated motifs of Kitano cinema, particularly people kind of pressing their look, uh, people 
kind of getting in arguments and just seeing how far they can push it, which leads to some, uh, like Jake mentions, these fantastic comedic moments. I think this is one of the first films that has the, the quintessential Katano gag where there's this young guy who's given a motorbike and he's offered a helmet and they, they point out he doesn't have a license and they give him a helmet and he's like, I don't need a helmet and he drives off on his motorbike and then it just hard cuts to him with just his a close up of his face with blood out his nose and then cuts to this like medium shot or long shot of him sitting on the curb next to the crashed motorcycle and it's just this hard cut to that, this cause and effect linked kind of um, impact gag which Katana would refine and, and reuse and rework throughout his entire career. And I think, you know, Boiling Point is kind of where it first comes in, where it starts um, in that very true moment. And then it leads on from another series where there's a couple of guys harassing someone on a motorbike and they crash into a parked car and the parked car guy complains to them. You know, like, what well, you look where you're going, whatever, and then he gets beaten up, and it's kind of like, even though he was righteous in complaining to them for crashing into his car, they were clearly at fault, he's still the one left on the side of the road with his bashed-up car and a bloody nose now as well for his trouble, which is something that's repeated, actually, in Hanabi, the, the junkyard owner, does the same thing. He beats a guy up after it was his fault he crashed into him. Um, it sets up these kind of antagonisms of society um, that I think become... Apparent there's kind of there's obviously the Yakuza versus civilians as one antagonism. There's also I think the young versus the old. Uh, we we follow a kind of a young guys in their mid twenty or early twenties, maybe even teens. Frankly, who have like you know dead end jobs. They play baseball in the you know their downtime, but they're not really kind of don't really have a foothold in society. Versus the older people around them who have often are defined by kind of shrinking away from taking responsibility for stuff or also have failed in their jobs. One of his major mentors of the main character is an like a, an ex-Yakuza. He didn't he didn't stay in the Yakuza and now he just kind of like grifts and runs a shitty bar. Um, you know, and then there's also, I think, in going to Okinawa, a very pointed element of American occupation. And we have this kind of almost an international perspective to the film. And um, there's also there's a great scene where they're when they, they go down to Okinawa to buy guns and there's this scene where there are this great shot street shot where they're standing by this mural for Metallica and Iron Maiden by a Coke vending machine um, trying to buy machine guns from an American soldier who's clearly, you know, stealing from the base and selling them into Japanese society. There, there's all these kind of antagonisms within the film, and I think that's really what Boiling Point is about. It's, it's you know, kind of like fa fielding these off against each other, but it is told in this very kind of rambling, kind of almost daydream way. You know, it's 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 like it's kind of a sunny summer story. You know, it's it's friends hanging out, doing things, except for the things they are hanging out and doing are like gun smuggling. And then we have that very strange ending, which I which was something I disliked a lot when I first saw the film. Um, which is basically, it's all a dream. You know, we caught the very final scene is, is our protagonist coming out of the same porta potty that he was in in the very start, coming into the baseball game. And so I was like, was this entire film just a dream? And, you know, to me that felt very, because I interpreted the film much more literally, I think, when I previously watched it, I felt that was very cheap and kind of annoying. It's like, oh, you know, everyone hates it. It was just a dream thing. But you, when you kind of think of the film more in terms of these kind of, like, social antagonisms and push and pull um i you know i think it it works better as kind of like uh maybe it isn't all a dream maybe we're cutting back to that 
decision where, you know, or that point in the guy's life where he could have gone somewhere else. Or maybe he did dream the whole thing. Oh, maybe he's got that rage building up in him. Maybe he's got that that disaffection already there. It, it takes on, you know, I think a more useful function as I, I watch the film now. But I suppose, you know, in terms of getting boiling point, I guess I guess that's kind of as much as I get is that I just think that there's like maybe, you know, we don't take the story so literally just focus on the, the dynamics because a lot of this film is just people arguing and rigid authority structures, elders coercing minors, you know, kind of juniors rather to do this and that. And just kind of everyone, it's not particularly inspiring. It's not like the elders are doing anything particularly well or, or usefully. Um, and that's kind of, that's the film. It's kind of, you know, a kind of a cross section of Japanese society not working very well, which I'm coming to realize is very much cross section of Katano's work entirely. Like the whole career uh, seems to be kind of a, a pretty corrosive uh, review of Japanese society of post-war Japan. Yeah, I feel like in a very unique way, he's he's almost the champion of passivity <laughs> in his <laughs> his work. Like he seems to really be interested in these characters who are very passive observers. You know, maybe contemplative, but no, there's this danger that that is inherent in engaging with these flawed systems. It's it's almost like. An advocate, uh, he's he's almost like an advocate for not engaging with these systems and, and questioning what that means. And this specifically feels that way. This this whole metaphor with the baseball and you know, you're gonna go get up and take a swing, or you're just gonna let it, you know, go past you and you know, watch yourself strike out. And in an odd way, I almost feel like uh, <laughs> Katana is a is advocating just let the ball go by. <laughs> I mean, I think that fits just, with something like Kids Return, you know, it's like you can work really, really hard or you can become, you know, a, a thug. Uh, either way, society is just going to hammer you down. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it, it is. Again, this movie does in many ways feel like sort of a dress rehearsal for what Sonatine would be. It even kind of stops its rising action midway to take a seaside vacation. Uh, I don't think it's nearly as successful as that film, but. I, I think a lot of that has to do with, with what we'll get into with the next one. There's There needs to be a counterbalance, because a film like this, regardless of how you interpret the ending, which, again, I think echoes Sonatine in that I, I feel like that is a very ambiguous ending. It's easy to say, well, he killed himself and is sitting in a car down the road. But it's, who knows? That's not really, <laughs> to me, reading is something that's like a concrete event happening, and nor is this kid somehow obtaining a uh, diesel tanker and <laughs> plowing it into a building and exploding. It, it, who knows? I'm, I'm not going to say it was all a dream or a fantasy or an imagining, but I, it, it's just, it's very ambiguous. You know, there's yeah sort of layers to these films where it, it's fruitless to try and interpret uh, the actual event. It's, to, it's about interpreting what he's saying. And there are times in this, where I think he's saying something quite vital and interesting, and there are times in this where I'm kind of lost in the weeds, and that's all right. I've only seen it the once. Uh, but yeah, I I think as we'll get into the next one, I, we're not going to go there yet, but there needs to be something to counterbalance his acerbicness, because this, this movie and Violent Cop and some of the later stuff uh, 
but sometimes you get a little lost in just how nasty uh, and foul his worldview can be. Like he 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 feels like someone who's never had any faith in the people around him and the systems, especially. And there are times where it gets a little bleak for me. <laughs> and this film is uh, is definitely goes there because they're they're the whole detour in say sonatine where where it's like okay we're getting away from the action and we're heading out to sea and there's this poetic beauty to it and here when they go out to sea it's like uh takeshi katano humping everything within sight and you know just kind of haphazardly raping people and beating them over the head constantly it's just like yeah it's funny but it's also just another layer of cruelty and that is uh, <laughs> what this film has for you. <laughs> yeah, I yeah. think just real quick looking at the ending, I kind of interpreted it as like maybe the final punchline as if everything in the film did happen. And then our protagonist just kind of brushed it off and went back to playing baseball the next day. Like a bunch of Yakuza and people got killed and the whole building was blown up by a truck. And he's like, all right, well, just back to the shitter the next day. Um yeah, I mean, yeah. if Violent Cop teaches us anything, it's that nothing will change. Um, I think it's, yeah. Yeah, I mean, to, to say to your point, Adam, you know, about in the weeds, I think the one thing that's very much established here that would become a huge trademark for Katana is those kind of grace notes, those kind of unusual poetic images. And we have a, one that is used a lot for marketing for this film. They're not by Film Movement, who instead decided to create one of the ugliest goddamn <laughs> Blu-ray covers in world history. Uh, but a lot of other more sensible film labels use that wonderful image of Takeshi Kitano sitting in a field of flowers with like a little crown of flowers he made for himself, which is, you know, a, an absurd image, you know, of a grown Yakuza thug, a rather violent man uh, who was, you know, taking the time to fashion a little crown for himself and sitting there kind of there are other people around, but, they're, you know, he's, it's not to impress them or to carry any kind of favor with anyone it's just something he obviously did to amuse himself but it's this you know kind of poetic image kind of maybe an aspirational kind of like a, a view of a, a an interior world for the character where there isn't a lot of you know you don't get to really see the interiority of a lot of katana's characters they don't talk about themselves there's no you know everything is in relation is created through kind of the universe acting around them uh, action their own actions forge their their worldviews you know no one self-analyzes it's you know Takeshi Kitano is about as far as you get from like say a Woody Allen character uh, in terms of you know talking about their hopes and dreams and desires and, and neuroses and everything um, so those kind of images come in here where you know Violent Cop does not have the Violent Cop is a very dark gritty genre film and it, it looks that way throughout uh, this movie has a couple of those really interesting images the the one with the crown it has this really fascinating image at the nightclub they go to a karaoke club and there's this fantastic sequence and it's a long kind of rambling sequence of one of the guys singing karaoke and Takeshi Kitano violently assaulting a man twice um, and people dancing um, and it's all shot, it's it's shot handheld, which is something Gitano really doesn't use uh, in his later films. And it's also used the wide angle lens, which shows up a couple of times in this film alone. I really, he does not use wide angle lenses, otherwise like visibly distorted, almost like a Wong Kar Wai kind of like ode, except that like really this is predates from the most famous Wong Kar Wai films that did it almost, um, mm -hmm. you know. Um, but it really, this bravura sequence 
put into the movie, you know, and and these are the things I think that Katana was starting to realize was that he needed these, or maybe what he's realizing is that film allowed him these incredibly kind of like these the, to to create these kind of passages of images and time and carve out these moments uh, that are not necessarily story specific, but that create or conjure up something larger than what the story would tell you that kind of they stick in your mind i mean when i think of boiling point i think of the flower crown it's not particularly a narrative image it kind of ties back in because he then separately makes a bouquet of the same flowers to hide an assault rifle um but you know that it, it creates those kind of like key images and and film can do that you know it's it's allowed to kind of lean into an image separate of story value or pragmatic elements or even literal kind of elements to just kind of like find something that's evocative and interesting and unusual and just kind of stay with it a little while and you know oftentimes those kind of sequences and those images really are what stick with an audience and really come to define the entire film so i think katana was finding that and he's finding it quick obviously with a second feature as director um so yeah, boiling point certainly. I, I would agree. You know, even as I find myself having much greater appreciation for it, I think it's a very good film. Uh, just generally speaking, I still think certainly it's also not the best Katano film. Certainly not the movie I would recommend anyone dive into. You know, to save this one for when you're already in the in the can for him. Yeah, and I do think it's kind of a film that might demand multiple viewings to really get. Uh everything out of but yeah i definitely did not come down on on that initial like oh this is one of his weakest features no i think it's it's quite an interesting film i just am not sure if it's entirely there you, you can feel yeah you can feel some definite evolution between the first two films and it's almost growing pains of sorts in that I think Violent Cop is probably a more successful uh, and fully realized film, but also I think this is like, you can see it reaching for something more interesting and uh, yes. it doesn't take long before he gets there. Yeah, I, I would fully agree with that. I think Violent Cop is a much more successful genre film, but Boiling Point is uh, kind of indispensable as a real Takeshi Kitano film. I, this feels very much like the new thing. This is a new filmmaker on the beat where Violent Cop is kind of like uh, an interesting take on the genre. It's a well-made film, but Boiling Point is kind of the real calling card of like, hey, there's there's a new filmmaker in town and he's doing some interesting stuff. Uh, Jake, did you have anything else on Boiling Point or shall we just move on to the third? Just a quick uh, kind of comparing the two Katano performances. Um, you know, he's very stone-faced and solemn through much of Violent Cop, but in Boiling Point, he's like very... I don't know, there's something very cheerful about him, um, and he has a little bit more of a sense of humor. Like in the aforementioned scene where he uses the, the bouquet of the birds of paradise to hide a gun with the purpose of killing the people he owes money to, he's holding it upright in their office, and he accidentally fires it early. And his reaction to kind of turning at the bouquet and like, oh, what the hell was that? That is really, really funny to me. Um, and then <laughs> everyone else looks horrified when they realize what's about to happen. But um, yeah, it's uh, it's nice to just see a, a little bit of range between these two characters. Yeah, yeah, this this more than anything as a performance, this is most overtly comedic and uh, dynamic performance that I've seen in really any of his films. Usually, he's sort of very very purposefully 
yeah. reserved. And and here he lets himself sort of be that B. Takeshi character a little bit more. And, you know, I will say they made some excellent use out of the sugar glass. Uh, every time he smashed a bottle over someone's head, it was, it, it got me laughing. <laughs> Yeah, it's a curious thing about the first, these uh, Violent Cop and Boiling Point, I feel like, almost stand out simply because they're like two movies where Takeshi Kitano is killed by someone rather than by himself, which is a good indication of uh, just the general themes recurring throughout his work. Yeah, and even that is is kind of strange in this film, because when they as soon as they get the gun, I think the first thing you see is him getting gunned down in the car, which doesn't happen until later on in the movie. Like, you get brief flashes of that and the aforementioned crown of flowers. Just it's, that's right. It's all has this, all just goes to the same place. Yeah, it I was is, surprised. To, I was surprised to hear he didn't edit it because it does. It does certainly feel like it has much more of a auteur. Editing. Yeah, and it it has those brief oh. flash forwards, and that will be something that becomes key by the time he hits Sonatine. Um. So yeah, I, it's interesting to note. Boiling Point proves he he was already thinking in that non-linear way. Um. Even when yeah, he wasn't actually handling the editing himself. Yeah, I would say this is uh, an instance where, as director, he was in the editing room far more than he probably was for Violent Cop, because this definitely has a lot of staples of what you would see uh, in the editing of his future films, which are very, very distinctly edited. Yes. Uh, and with that, we're going to move on to uh, A Scene at the Sea, which is uh, a big step forward, I'll say that. And uh, it also brings in, once again, Joe Hisashi, who... Boy, I I I don't know what the hell falling out these two gentlemen had, but god damn it. I wish that would just go away because uh he enriches <laughs> he enriches Katano's work in a way that few collaborations have, I think. It's just like it lends this poetry and this really sweetness to the uh, what is often in the absence of his music, just such acerbic, difficult work. Yeah, I think I think it, it fits really well here too. I, I suppose it's interesting because obviously Katana's next film from this would be Sonatine, and he famously he named Sonatine from like it's a, it's a pre your your pre work to a sonata. A sonatine is kind of like a shortened version of music, and he considered that it was a, a major step forward in his career. That Sonatine was like he had kind of reached a level as an artist and as a filmmaker and he wanted to mark that and that's why he named the film that i think it's really interesting because a scene at the sea is i i think is it's a masterpiece it's incredible film and i honestly as much as i i've elaborated like hanabi is is such an important film to me personally and kind of this landmark film and i really love it and i love many of his films honestly like i'm not sure a scene at the sea might not be his finest film uh his third movie the one he made prior to thinking he had it all together. Uh, it's it's a remarkably yeah, distinct, beautiful, layered film. And, and I think Hisashi is a huge part of that. His music became defining throughout Katana's career. I think it works really well here because I suppose Hisashi is kind of like a minimalist composer, works in these very tight kind of rhythmic repetitions. And this, this is a film that is about specifically kind of repetitions and conscious doing something to get good at it it's a film about it's a film about practicing about dedicating yourself to a craft um in this case a man learning to surf and you know it's just this this wonderful film it, it's um 
I've seen this, just watching this the last few times I've seen it, and this, unsurprisingly, this was the one of the harder films of Katanos to find when I was first got into him in like the early 2000s. This is the one I had to order from Hong Kong on DVD because there wasn't a DVD release in, in the UK or in uh, the US that you could easily grab. No, Sonati and Hanabi, Violent Cop, they were all well represented. The completely bloodless movie about a man learning to surf western distributors had no interest in despite it being this really remarkable poetic film so um you know so it goes but i think i i'm really hoping maybe you know with this podcast and whoever listens to it and just generally chattering on the internet i think this is a film that maybe a lot of people could i think really learn to love and it's maybe not as well known as it should be just generally speaking like when you talk about great 90s movies this one doesn't really come up that often and i i think it should yeah, this is um, this is just one of the best films I've ever seen for this podcast in the eight years I've been on here. Um, it's incredible. normally we don't challenge the standard that much, but I would agree with you. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, we've we've watched some good things, but uh, this is really up there. And just the just the opening uh, of this. I don't know the names, but this young man finds the 75 percent of a surfboard. He brings it home and he just all of a sudden is filled with this. I mean, again, we kind of we have this like thread of ennui that carries through all these characters. But here he finds something that gives him like a real purpose in life, like because otherwise he's just a he's a trash collector. And it doesn't seem like he has a girlfriend, but, uh, you know, it just seems to be the two of them alone. And he finds the surfboard and then he starts like repairing it so that he can try to use it. And then what, like as soon as Joey Shaishi music kicks in, I was just on board for this beginning to end. I, I like, I was like, Oh, this is amazing. And yeah, just the, the fact of him going out there and, you know, over trying to overcome the, the failure of, you know, not being able to ride the surfboard and eventually getting into the practice of doing it more and more. And as soon as he's entering competitions and, uh, yeah, I just was just so happy watching this movie, and then it ends so sad, but it's all so good. Yeah, it's, uh, again, I, I think Kids Return is sort of the obvious counterpoint to this one, uh, but it's it's a very different film for sure. I, I just look at them the same way in that. I'm kind of surprised they never like tried to turn them into Hollywood films at some point and uh, turn it into some dreck I would never want to watch because you just look at it on paper and it's like, oh, a deaf trash man down on his luck takes up surfing <laughs> and it's like, oh God, what's, what's man, I never watched this. Yeah, what, what's interesting about a scene at the sea and I think it, one of the things that really stands to its credit um it's the kind of movie almost no one makes because it's yeah, and we we can look overlooking you know other details like he's deaf mute and his girlfriend is deaf as well and there's you know obviously you could say it's a you know film about a minority about nothing else. Also, I think Claude Maki, the the main actor who plays him, is I think half Brazilian. Um, I think he he falls in there, and there is like this Brazilian community in Japan that are often quite stigmatized. It's kind of interesting that bleeds a lot into like Takeshi Miike's films he casts a lot of people within that milieu and focuses on it several times. There's all these like elements you could focus into, but chiefly one of the really fascinating things about A Scene to the Sea, and it's wonderful, and you wonder why it doesn't happen more, is that it's a film about getting good at something 
But it's not a film about winning at something. It's not a film about getting great mm-hmm. at something. It's not a film about, you know, becoming renowned and noteworthy. It's literally just a film about a guy, you know, he, he decides he's called by the sea. And we, we don't know why, particularly. Like, why does he want to surf? Is it, you know, is it the, the ocean repairs a lot in Katano's movies. I think there's, you know, there are many poetic elements one could describe to the ocean that are, you know, custom fit or already made that we can all latch onto. And I think Katano trades in those quite openly as well. Um, but like he trains and he practices in very mundane fashion to become able to surf and i mean he he goes to competitions i don't think he wins the competitions i think like it's quite likely there's there's a photo taken they have maybe participation trophies or something like no one's like hell yeah you're the best you're a prodigy well, the movie doesn't this. even tell us right? exactly like, right it, yeah it tells us who wins the the class a tournament or whatever but his heat like we never even learn who wins it it's like it's so Right, there's, there's a photo, like, there's a photo yeah. I think, where they're all carrying, like, everyone has a trophy, but, like, one guy, I think, is, like, a notably larger trophy. I'm thinking everyone else got the, you know, you were here today trophy, you know? But, like, this is the point. The film is about just doing something because you want to do it. It's not about monetizing it or excelling at it. And it's something that's, like... And if other people have noted, like, it's it's something that it, nowadays people are uncomfortable thinking about things like that. Everyone's talking about how you need to monetize your hobby. You need to, you know, get in, you know, whatever, you know, the, the gig economy, you know, like, get your, you know, take what you love and, you know, make it a business and destroy it. <laughs> you know, it's it's a movie about just doing something just because you want to do it, not because it's it's leads anywhere in particular. And frankly like the fact that we've kind of lost that as a center of life is a shame and I, you know i think it's one of the things that really appeals to me about this film is that it's a film about mundane small acts uh on a very small scale with very small stakes um and most filmmakers just they they can't allow themselves to trade in those because it's just deemed insignificant or unimportant even though this, if nothing else, characterizes the vast majority of people's experiences, because most of us aren't good enough at anything to be particularly noteworthy. Uh, like, Optimism Vaccine has won no prizes, I believe, for podcasting. Um, yeah, and no audience. And no audience, <laughs> and, um, and and pro- probably never will. But here we are, another another day recording, so... Certainly, we us. haven't monetized it. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, great movie. Yeah, uh, I mean, yeah, Jack, you just summed it all up beautifully there. And then just one one sequence that stands out to me, it, uh, it reminded me of one in um, Johnny Toe's uh, Throwdown. It's where he can't get on the bus because the surfboard is too large and the driver won't let him on because it's crowded. So he has to walk home and his girlfriend takes the bus. And then once she gets to their stop, she starts running backwards towards him. And they have like this really like beautiful meat in the middle situation and uh, i don't know i think that just something like that just really summed up these two characters and yeah again like on paper this could be the worst hollywood emotional dreck you've ever seen but katano makes it work splendidly and i i just yeah backed up with joe ice he's Aishi's score i i i was just so in love with this film and these characters and i i i would follow them anywhere or what else it could be, and what I feared it was going to be, given Kitano's general, you know, negative uh, worldview, I would say, uh, is what immediately comes to mind for me when I'm, wa- when I'm watching this unfold. 
and I'm waiting. Oh no, what what's gonna happen? What's what's coming? Is I'm thinking of Lars von Trier, you know, I'm thinking of I'm thinking of something like Dancer in the Dark, and I'm like, oh boy, what are we gonna how are we gonna torture this poor person who's just kind of doing this sort <laughs> of stuff? And and Katano is not above that sort of behavior, but that's not what this movie is. This is one of the only Katano movies where the community sort of embraces this man and, and kind of takes him in and and makes his life more whole and there's uh, it's it's just wonderful and yes it does end in tragedy much like uh dancer in the dark but also not at all like that because it's not some thudding jackhammer of of pain it's just the man gave himself to the sea and the sea took him one day and there's this beautiful montage at the end that is it's just incredibly powerful and it's yeah it is a very sad movie but it's also in the way that i think all of katano's best films are they balance this sort of anger and sadness and joy and that's maybe where he loses me sometimes is is that when that joy goes away but uh in his very best films it's there there's there's a joy and a playfulness and a real celebration of the small moments in life and the people that surround you. And this is that in spades. And it's, it is indeed going on on the list with Sonatine and Hanabi as one of the absolute best films of the 1990s. It's just hard to argue. I think they're all fantastic. Yeah, I think the film has a really fascinating view of community above all else. And I, I think it's very indicative of Katano's approach because I think the community here, the surfing community, at first they, they kind of they kind of make fun of him a little when the when the trash man shows up with his beat up board and tries to surf and he has no idea what he's doing and he's just falling on his ass and sinking and whatever. And they kind of like they joke a little bit about it, but, you know, they're not they don't stop him, you know, but he keeps showing up. And when he keeps showing up, they realize he's serious. And then he kind of like he comes into he comes into their fold and he becomes one of them. And then there's another group of of kind of like uh, like idiots, kind of a kind of a manzai comedy duo, the the kind of group that Kitano distinguished himself in professionally that really kind of opened up his career for everything else who kind of show up and decide they're going to, they, you know, at first they make fun of him for wanting to surf while they're playing football and then. They see him doing it all the time. They're like, well, there must be something good about surfing. So we're going to learn to surf, too. And they, they start showing up and they're also clueless. And, you know, but they, they kind of even they being kind of clueless and kind of figures of comedy kind of come into the fold of just like appreciating being there and doing things. And, and the community within the film becomes a kind of a, a curious mixture of things where they're they're not necessarily helping necessarily, but they're, you know, and there's still a certain amount of, like, distance between them. Like, they're mostly just sitting around on the beach. But it's it kind of, like, tempers something that I think distinguishes all of Katana's work or maybe maybe is more of an insight, insight into Katana's worldview than Boiling Point or any of his other films, which often come off quite miserablest, which is that I think Katano believes, like, every, you know, individual effort is paramount. You know, you have to... You know, you will always, it's always just going to be you and the community around you can drag you down or distract you or whatever. But, you know, if you keep showing up and doing things because you want to do them, that's that's laudable. And I think what's really interesting about this is you mentioned that montage at the end, which I think is 
a really remarkable kind of a, a reframing of the film. And obviously, so our surfer guy, towards the end, he goes out into the sea and the surfboard comes back without him. And it's kind of like, oh, he, he died, he drowned. And that could be depressing within the context of the film or whatever. But, you know, maybe it's also, you know, the, the work is complete. You know, he's, he's done mm -hmm. with what he wanted to do. And that montage at the end where it kind of cuts back to various, it's, it doesn't cut back to what we saw before. It's new footage of him learning to surf. And what is central to it is his girlfriend. And there is this kind of recurring element throughout earlier in the film where the girlfriend experiences pangs of jealousy because there's other women on the beach who were, you know, pay attention to the guy and they're doing this and that. There's this one girl who is nominally flirting, I think, by having every man around try to peel fruit for her because <laughs> she's just terrible at it. Um, you know, and, and there's, you know, these elements of jealousy and the girlfriend... The girlfriend isn't given a lot of uh, shrift throughout much of the film. And I think if we would, were to, you know... A, talk about a limitation of Kitano's films, all of them, it's that there is no feminine perspective in Kitano's work. His films are absolutely about men uh, and male structures and, and all of that kind of thing. Um, and he, so, so the girlfriend becomes, throughout the film, at certain points you're like, is she just doing it because she's got no one else? Is she, you know, is she being bullied by this? Is she happy sitting out on the beach all day doing, you know, and she does menial tasks. She folds his clothes and collects them like he doesn't do any of that stuff. She brings him food. He never brings her food, you know, this and that. There's all these kind of things. But that final montage shows, like, foregrounds the girlfriend doing things and playing on the beach and enjoying it and doing all of the, you know, kind of like participating. And it's this realization and this reframing that what she did was another individual effort. It was its own kind of a gift to him. It was something she really, I think, really did do for her own enrichment, but for him, you know, uh, a kind of a nurturing thing. And it's, it's like, to me, honestly, hit me like a ton of bricks. It's, it's a really beautiful kind of uh kind of illumination of a character and of a of a worldview and of a social thing that is so much more hopeful really than most of what Katano puts into his films it's just, it just is really beautiful kind of grace note that he he inserts and let's fill and so yeah i mean this is without question i think his most upbeat film and his most promising film in that sense um but it's just, it's such, it's such a wonderful, wonderful film and it's beautiful looking. And again, the sun, you know, it's a summer sunshine beachside film. Um, it just kind of, it's, it's just remarkable. I think it's remarkable. This is his third film as, and this is the first film he edited. Uh, like, but it's, this is his third film and it was with his next film. He's like, okay, I've arrived. And it's like, no, I think you arrived one movie earlier and like, holy shit, this is incredible. Yeah. It is. It is. I'm kind of surprised this is the only film he's made with a deaf mute protagonist because it seems like the most <laughs> natural fit possible. Where he's like, oh, uh, they don't have to talk. Well, he Great. did do Zatoichi where where he was blind. Um, <laughs> wrong one. <laughs> yeah, his 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 protagonists rarely speak to begin with, but this one, uh, yeah, obviously a little more naturalistic on that front and. Yeah, I, I think we've probably said what we need to say. Uh, this is probably the least known of his major works, uh, if you consider it that. And I think we all do, because it's it's a pretty staggering piece. Uh, it is, yeah, I, I say sad, uh, but I think Jack's description is, is completely accurate. It's not a depressing film. It's a film that is 
celebratory in its loss and it, it feels like mourning in the most constructive possible way but it is it is a punch in the gut at the end <laughs> whether yeah. that it, it's not something that leaves you depressed but it is something that's gonna yeah yeah don't be afraid to tears to well up in the old eyes <laughs> yeah it's tragic but it's not going to leave you feeling miserable it's actually very life-affirming and and even before the montage she tapes a photo to his surfboard and it's pointedly a photo of the two of them after he had just had the surf competition and she sends that out to see so that it can sort of guide his spirit to wherever it needs to be if you know however you want to interpret it but yeah it's just such a loving touching moment in a movie that is filled with bits like that and i am i'm so happy to have seen this film now yeah i, I think i would say the same i wonderful stuff wonderful stuff and yeah we, we're probably gonna finish off the rest of Ticano uh Ticano's work uh sooner or later but i think we're probably gonna take a little break for now because we've really hit the bulk of the stuff uh but it's been a hell of a journey. I think uh, I've really enjoyed this series and I've found some just remarkable, remarkable work. Uh, and glad when we can do that as opposed to just watching sequels to House. <laughs> um, that being said, uh, we need to do putovers. Uh, as, as a guest host, I officially recuse myself from the putover section because I've been out of town all week and haven't watched a goddamn thing. So I'm going to kick it to Jack. Uh, wh what are you putting over this week? Uh, I'm going to put over a movie I haven't seen since the 90s, uh, which is uh, Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula, which I finally get around to revisiting. When I saw this on TV in the 90s, it was very much like, oh, you know, uh, Keanu Reeves can't act and Winona Ryder's accent is stupid. What a dumb movie. Uh, you know, it was very much what I remember the public opinion of the movie being. And I watched it the other day, and it is just one of the most visually splendiferous, idea-packed films I have ever seen. It is um, incredible work. Absolutely insane that anyone allowed Francis Ford Coppola to make it. Uh, but honestly, I guess, if nothing else, you should probably bank on Francis Ford Coppola. I think he has to, he's self-financing his new movie. That's how broken Hollywood is now. Uh, but yeah, Bram Stoker's Dracula, if you've never seen it before or if it's been a while and you don't really remember much about it, just give it a look. It is goddamn incredible. Like, holy shit. You know, I'm going to take you up on that recommendation because I never saw it. I, I was victim to the reputation at the time. You know, I thought it was supposed to be a stinker. So I know it has been reassessed in recent years, but I, I have not gotten around to it. So I I will do so. I will do so. Uh, Jake, how about you? What are you putting over this week? Uh, yeah, I'm going to put over the best non-podcast film I watched this past week, which is Albert Serra's Pacifiction, uh, currently playing on Mubi, if you happen to have that. Uh, I'm sure you can also find it elsewhere. But yeah, I have only seen one other Serra film, uh, which we watched for this podcast. It was Liberté. I was not a fan of. Uh, so I was uh, pleasantly surprised to see how uh, not just good, but insanely remarkable uh, Pacifiction is. It's uh, set in the French Polynesian islands, and we follow this uh, diplomat who sort of has his, uh, he kind of controls the lay of the land. He runs a nightclub, and he's very much a popular figure. 
Um, but his world kind of comes crashing down when he realizes that there's nuclear testing happening offshore and he really finds himself in the spiral that he can't quite get out of. But it's not really a plot driven film. It's one that you can just sort of watch and have it lull you into its just intoxicating vibes is what this movie is filled with. And as far as uh, cinematography goes, this is one of the most beautifully shot digital films I've ever seen. And it really uh, impresses you with what it can do in that medium. Oh, all right. My son cut himself. But uh, yeah, a pacifiction I wholeheartedly recommend. Ooh, that's a little harder <laughs> sell. A uh, new film from the director of Liberté, I think. Uh, it's going to take some effort to come in and watch that one. I, I will, if, if it's it any consolation, there is no uh, BDSM throughout, so you're safe in that regard. No old naked men in the woods yeah, shooting everywhere. No. Here, here's what There's I'll say. Some uh, topless it, lady DJs is what you get here. Yeah, okay, it okay. is three hours long, but I will also back Jacob. It is a phenomenally good film. I it's certainly I you know Liberté has its its ideas and everything, but no, Pacifiction is is amazing. It's probably frankly unbalanced the best movie of last year. It's not as much fun as Aurora, but it, it's it is a better movie. It's a better achievement within the medium. It's incredible, and I wholeheartedly recommend it too. All right, uh, I'll pass on that. But uh, you guys, you know, <laughs> thank you for your now service. Now it's time to talk about the Patreon hours. and how if you give us twenty dollars a month, you can force Adam to watch Pacifiction. Uh, fair enough. Fair enough. You could very well. Which that is exactly what we're going to talk about. We are, uh, despite you know, as I said, we don't monetize this. It's nothing but a hobby for us. But uh, it's a hobby that costs a bit of money. So, you know, we do have a Patreon. It helps us keep uh, keep going at this. Uh, and, you know, basically we just, we just want to pay our bills and cover any equipment problems that might crop up. And you guys allow us to do that. And if you join our Patreon, which is it's this Optimism Vaccine on Patreon, uh, at any level, Steve, our regular host, is going to send you... Just uh, any, uh, he's gonna send you a DVD, a Blu-ray, something out of his personal collection, uh, and he will mail that out to any patrons in the continental United States. Um, I know we have a new patron this month, uh, David. Who, uh, yeah, keep an eye out. We will contact you. Uh, make sure we have your correct address on file if you are in the United States, and we'll get something sent out to you right quick. Um, if you. Do help us out at uh, one of the higher levels, $5 and up. Uh, we will read your name on air. And those patrons this month are David, CWW, Evan, Ryan, Dustin, and Paula. Thank you guys for your help. Uh, and at $25, and this can be a one-time thing, uh, doesn't have to be recurring. Uh, if you want to have it recurring, great. Thank you. But uh, it's totally unnecessary. Uh, we will let you dictate to us uh what something you want us to cover you know if you want uh us to cover some bizarre thing like liberté which we've already talked about in, in some respect but if you want a full liberté cast to pair with something else with old naked people in the woods uh we we can handle that you just have to suggest it you know we, you, we are beholden to your whims uh, but then again, that's, that's it for the Patreon. Just uh, search Optimism Vaccine. We will also have a link in the description that'll get you right there as well. Uh, if you have any questions, comments, as Steve would say, death threats. I know 
personally, I would, I would prefer not to have that, but, uh, uh, you can always email us at optimismvaccine at gmail.com and, uh, we will check that promptly. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter. We've got a YouTube thing we're building up a little bit on just another way to see the, find the podcast. But, uh, or if you, if you don't have Twitter, like a sane human and want to watch, uh, some of editor Collins fun little, uh, promo videos, we have those kind of archived up on the YouTube now as well. Uh, I think that's really about it, gentlemen. Um, I suppose last week I failed to note that we had Jake here and I could give him the last word. So I, I, I should give him the last word. Bang, bang, bang. That's a gun. Bang, bang, bang.